The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. If you'll open your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. And what's great about Jonah is anywhere you open in Jonah, you're at all the chapters because it's such a, a small book in length, but not in depth. And as uh, Pastor Caleb mentioned, um, uh, being an elder of uh, Grace Baptist Church and director of Soul Fishing Ministries, we also have a podcast called Stop and Think About It. So if you ever, uh, if you like listening to podcasts, it's for the Christian thinker. So as you get time to stop and think about it, uh, check out our podcast um, that I do with uh, one of the deacons of our church, and we're hoping to uh, grow our listening audience and really not just tell Christians what to think, but teach Christians how to think. So uh, a lot of apologetics, uh, theology, and I think you'd be greatly blessed if you would check that out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you're mighty and that there's none like you, O oh Lord. And Father, I thank you for such a time as this, O oh God. Father, I pray that today I would hide behind the cross at Calvary, Lord, and instruct the mind of your people, that you would inflame the heart of your people, and that the will of your people would be challenged to live more deeply and faithfully and consistently for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, O oh God. Father, I pray that you would press the preaching of your word and penetrate the heart of your people this morning. Help us to become more like Christ in every facet of our lives, O oh God. And may this not just fall upon deaf ears, but upon transformed hearts. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Can you imagine if your whole family came to know Christ in an instant? What about your entire neighborhood? How about all of Long Island or all of New York City? Wouldn't you be amazed if God did such a thing? Well, something of this nature occurred during the period of time we call the Great Awakening. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, when he first heard George Whitfield, who was a prominent preacher of the Great Awakening, experienced the great work of revival and said, never before had I such an idea and foretaste of heaven. The power, the experience, the warmth with which he treated it, I can by no means express, though I feel the influence of it. Another here said of Whitfield, he was such a preacher as I never heard before or since. Nobody could help be affected. The most wicked and ill-conditioned men went to hear him and fell like slacked lime in a moment, even though they were not converted. I would have heard him preach all the night through. And as God mightily used Woodfield during the Great Awakening, as he thundered the word of God in an open field, and many souls came to Christ, Jonah preached and saw an awakening on a scale that Whitfield 
could perhaps only dream about. We have seen Jonah run from God, thrown overboard while on the run, and pray from within a fish, not a whale, all the while on assignment. You see, the life of ministry is not an easy assignment. It's not an easy life. And everyone who is called of God to serve God, you are in ministry. There is no, if you will, professional and clergy in one sense because we're all one in Christ. And now Jonah is going to preach the most, to the most wicked city in his day and God by his spirit will move upon his word in a mighty way. Look with me in Jonah chapter 3 as I read the word of God. It says, And the word of God came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and repent, or your version may say relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, this morning, the title of this message is God's Gracious Revival. And I have three points to share with you this morning, and I'm going to give them to you up front. Point number one, a repentant prophet, found in verses one through four. Point number two, a repentant people, found in verses five through nine. And point number three, a repentant God, found in verse 10. Well, let's look at verses one through four. God had called Jonah patiently a second time. And God is so kind. Just think of the number of times God has been patient with you. That he's come to you a second time. And you said, here I am, Lord. I've sinned again in, in whatever such a way. Here I am again, Lord. I, I've neglected to read the scriptures. I've neglected to turn to you in prayer. And God has been so patient with you and I. I mean, beyond belief. And the Bible says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John Owen said, No man can preach that sermon well to others that he does not first preach it to his own heart. 
For unless he finds the power of it in his own heart, he cannot have any confidence that it will have any power in the hearts of others. God's word had done a work in Jonah, and now it will do a work through Jonah. God caused revival to enter his heart, and his preaching would bear the fruit of revival in the heart of the Ninevites. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ in the salvation of sinners, and this comes through the means of God's word. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing means proclamation. Preaching must take place. Preaching may have fallen on hard times in our day and age, but it is still God's vehicle for the word of God to be shouted from the rooftops. Paul wrote, how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? Jonah was called by God to wield the sword of God's word to a people he was called to reach. Jonah wasn't sharing. He was preaching. He went from running away in disobedience to obediently running into the battle. So many believers seem to run away from the battle, run away from ministry rather than run face, head, heart, right into battle. His repentance or God manifested as he boldly heralded God's word by God's spirit upon him in this extremely wicked city. And Jonah's life is very much like our lives. We were running from God. God called us to himself. He brought us to our knees. He brought us to a place of desperation where we could go nowhere else. Remember, Jonah was in that fish. I mean, what hope was there? He called out to God and he made this declarative statement in Jonah chapter two and verse nine. He says, but with the voice of thanksgiving, with sacrifice to you, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's the only one it belongs to. Doesn't belong to us per se, belongs to him. We're only saved because of him. And Jonah's life, a drive-by of ours, he saved us and he called us to serve him. And saints, as we are to walk as God's repentant people, we are to have daily fellowship with him through prayer and to learn his word. Because Jonah was called to bring the word. He had to know what he was bringing. He had to know the word of God if he was going to bring the word of God. We are to have a heart filled with God's word, filled with love, and that love must spill out into the lives of those who are lost. If we love them, our lives must be so filled with the word of God that it spills out. Like when you pour too much water in the glass, it can't go anywhere. It's got to spill out beyond the glass. Your life is like that glass. It, the word of God has to spill out beyond your life into the lives of other people. How is your prayer life? How is your learning of God's word? When, when there's opportunities to hear God's word here in this place, do you come to the Bible studies and Sunday schools and the, the preaching of God's word on Sunday mornings? And are you doing it in your homes? Parents, your job, not the job of the church, is to bring the scriptures to your children daily. Many people want to send their kids to kids' church and hope that that kid will turn out like the Apostle Paul at the end of the day. That is never God's call. 
realize that youth ministries and children's ministries, they're relatively new. And the more kids that are going to youth ministries, this might sound controversial. Uh, Scott Brown did a 30-year study on it. The more kids that are going to youth ministries, the less kids that are actually following Christ because nothing is happening in home. Fathers especially, this is for you. Your job is to sit down with your children and do family worship with them. Every home should be a little church, Martin Luther said. Do it with your kids. If you know Pastor Caleb is preaching on Sunday morning, ask, ask him, what are you preaching on next week, Pastor Caleb? What text are you reading? Sit down and prepare your family the night before to hear the word of God. This is something that many families don't do. But this is what we need to do, especially as fathers. Prepare the hearts of your children because if you don't disciple them at home, I promise you the world will do discipleship for you. And you don't want the world to disciple them because they're not going to give them the proper doctrine. They're going to give them worldly, ungodly doctrine. Fathers, do it in your homes. Moms, do it in your homes. Do it together. And when your children see that that your Christian walk is not a Sunday morning thing, but it is your weekly life, they're going to say, man, if this is important to mom and dad, this must be important for my life. I need to sit up on the edge of my seat and I need to listen. None of that was in my notes, but I just feel like that had to be said. And we need to learn God's word. Fathers, do your children ever catch you on your knees praying? reading the scriptures. And as you sit down and read with them, they're going to start asking you all kinds of questions. My eight-year-old, my 12-year-old, they ask me tons of great theological questions. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And it will cause you to study the word of God more because you have to be able to answer your own children. How often are these disciplines displayed in your life throughout the week? The desire to obey God manifests in the disciplines that you have throughout the week. And his commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. It's not, I have to do your will. You know, just kind of grab onto the handlebars and hold on for dear life. But really, a joyful, I, I delight to obey your will. This is my delight to follow Christ. And we're called to follow, we're called to pray, we're called to learn God's word, and we're called to share God's word. And besides... A repentant prophet, point number two, we see a repentant people. We're going to spend a lot of time here. You see, the fruit of biblical preaching by God's word was a revival, a great awakening for those under the impending doom of God's righteous judgment. Sinners were awakened and aroused like a military soldier that comes to attention. When the commander yells, ten hut, they just snap to attention. The hopelessness that Jonah experienced in the fish when he, he thought he might die there caused him to turn to God. And now that same hopelessness would cause these Ninevites to turn to God. This is the greatest revival that the world has ever known. And God would have us look at these characteristics of his sovereign work by his word preached through the prophet Jonah. Look at me again at verse 5. 
of Jonah chapter 3, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a, pa- a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered his, himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and repent or relent and not and uh, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, what is a revival? What is an awakening? Anybody here from a Pentecostal background besides myself? Okay, so this might sound familiar to you. If you're from a Pentecostal background, revival is described as a mass amount of people falling backward at an area that they would call the altar and speaking gibberish, uh, maybe barking like a dog, hissing like a snake. It, it It just becomes a dog and pony show, somehow manifesting strange things. This is not revival. This is a circus, and, and, and I've seen a lot of that, and it always seemed very odd to me, and I was told when I questioned it that I had to be more consi- con- concerned about the condition of the hearts of the people on the floor than the fact that they're falling over backwards, and I don't know what's going on. I was told that I was too much of a word man and not enough of a spirit man because I was looking in God's word, you know, the one that the spirit wrote, <laughs> And so what is revival? Revival is a fuller giving and pouring out of God's Holy Spirit upon a people. Thomas Kuehler wrote, several copious showers of heavenly blessings have descended when we were not expecting them. Steve Lawson said, it is bringing back to life that which has become dormant. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, people are aware of the presidency of the Holy Spirit over everything in the life of the whole community. All classes are affected by it. People of all ages, people of all temperance, people of all intellectual types. Jonathan Edwards said, it is nothing but the immediate result of an uncommon attention on the part of a church and congregation to the truth of God, particularly to the great truths which disclose the worth of the soul and the only way, the only way which it can be saved. In other words, those dead in sin of all ages and types, come to life on on a grand scale by the shower and work of God's word and spirits. And Nineveh experienced such a revival. And this revival was a saving revival, a sobering revival, a sweeping revival, and a sanctifying revival. And let's, let's look at each one of these. First, it was a saving revival. You see, in verse 5, it says, The people in Nineveh believed God. And this was huge. This this was mountainous. This was monumentous. This was the peak of the mountain. This was was a grand canyon of God's work. The people of Nineveh believed God. Because what did they believe before? Well, the Ninevites believed in a fish god. And, and, and pagan gods 
they believed that they were better than everyone. They, they, they wreaked havoc around the known world, slaughtering people beyond belief. If you read Nahum chapter 3, they were called a bloody city, a pagan city, an idolatrous city, a horror city. I mean, they were the ISIS of their day. So for this group of people to believe God, I mean, this, this had to be a miraculous work of God. As the prophet of God preached the word of God by the power of God to the elect of God, they responded by calling to God by repentance. You see, these people stopped. They put on the brakes to listen to a small town unknown country preacher. The hustle and bustle of the city ceased. Commerce quieted. Noisy neighborhoods, they grew silent. The marketplace buzzed and even the king's quarters came to a holy hush. And this holy hush settled over the entire city as the people of Nineveh believed God. In Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, it references that there were 120,000 infants which equates to 600,000 people. Realize this was over a half a million people in this massive metropolis of its day in ancient time. Even if this were hyperbolic, this was repentance on a grand scale such as the world has ever known. When Peter preached at Pentecost, there was 3,000 souls that were saved. But numerically, that doesn't even compare to what happened in Nineveh. This was a massive turning to God in a massive city. And although it wasn't on Jonah's map, it was on God's map. The people had been regenerated by the supernatural hand of God. Psalm chapter 1. The Ninevites once personified the wicked chaff and God transformed them into a tree planted by streams of water. He replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and he washed them with clean water water to obey his command. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. However, despite the clear teaching of scripture, there are those that still deny the truth that there was this massive revival in Nineveh. Steve Lawson references that some scholars believe that such a massive scale turning to God in revival was highly unlikely. Assyrian records are absent of this citywide revival. And why would this be? Because it was the practice of official ancient historians to delete embarrassing events to the reputation. Egyptian records make no mention of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the drowning of Egypt's army recorded by Moses in Exodus 14. Neither did the Assyrians record the killing of 185,000 of their soldiers in Jerusalem found in 2 Kings 19.35. Yet both of these events occurred. How many of us talk about our childhood battles where we got whooped, right? We only talk about the ones that we won. We don't talk about the embarrassing ones where we ended up face on the floor. And the same, it was the same way with these historians. But God's word records the good, the bad, and the ugly. It leaves nothing out. It doesn't always make everybody look like the hero. David, what a great king, yet he committed adultery, Peter, what a mighty preacher at Pentecost, yet he denied Christ three times. It gives us the truth raw. And this amazing record allows us to read and glorify God for his gracious revival. And know this, God is still able to save the ungodly today. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe there's people you, you work with that are so ungodly, so as if it looks like they're beyond redemption, that God can even save them? We here this morning, you and I are all a testament to his saving grace. You are a testament to God's saving grace if you know him as Lord. Is there anyone that Christ's blood cannot cleanse? And if that were not enough, Christ himself vindicates and puts his stamp of approval on the genuineness of the Ninevite conversion when he says in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And Christ pointed to himself as that greater prophet. You see, God would have not relinquished or removed his hand of judgment and impending doom if this were kind of a spurious, superficial, and false conversion. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And they didn't perish. The Lord knows his own, and they will never perish. If you are in Christ, hear this, you will never perish in hell. Saints in Christ, you will never know the wrath of God, but you will only know the joys of the kingdom of heaven. That's what you will know. And these people believed God. And to believe means to stand firm. It means to be established, to be supportive, to trust. And this is what happened. They stood firm for the very first time. The very first time they heard the word of God, they stood firm upon it and believed God. Like the prodigal son, they turned from their rebellion and they turned to their father. They turned from the pigsty of pagan religion, idolatry, and trusted in the one true God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 9. Just as the pagan sailors had done in Jonah chapter 1 when Jonah was on, run, on the run from God. And all heaven rejoiced over this mass repentance. But let me ask you, why does heaven rejoice if one sinner repents? Is it because of what the sinner did? But it's not. It's not because of what the sinner did. It's because of what the Savior did. Imagine, I heard a story about a man who fell on the train tracks. And the train was coming and another man jumped on top of him and laid on top of him. And the train actually went over both of them and neither of them died. When they got the men out from underneath the train tracks, do you think anybody said to the guy who was, the man who was being saved, oh, great job. No, they gave all accolades to the guy that was trying to save the one who was trying to take his own life. All praise goes to God, the one who saves the sinner. He looks out upon the earth and he says, I'm going to make that wretched man, Saul of Tarsus, I'm going to make him from a murderer into a missionary. I'm going to pull Steve Schultz from the slime pit and I'm going to make him a vessel for my honor. And that's what he's done with all of us here. We need to give glory to God because God could save the most wretched of sinners. And as we look in the mirror, we see the proof of that. Not because of what the sinner did, but because of what God did. 
The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He regenerates. He causes the heart to come alive unto God and save the barbaric city from from their sin and from his wrath. Because you see, God opens the hearts to believe and he opened the heart to believe in the preaching of Jonah just like he did in the book of Acts when he opened the heart of Lydia. You see, no one could open their own heart to God. It takes a sovereign act of God to regenerate the heart and cause it to believe. We can't make ourselves believe any more than Lazarus could have walked out of the tomb prior to Christ calling him out. I mean, that vault of the heart is locked up tighter than Fort Knox. Understand that. You cannot and no man can open up their own heart to God. This is a sovereign work of God. He must do it. He alone can do it. You brought nothing to your salvation, understand, except the sin that needed to be forgiven and atoned for. Yet, many religions attempt to work for their salvation, but to no avail. After feeding the 5,000, the people asked Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 9, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, you're expecting an action-oriented answer here. Like, go pray, go do this, go to Jerusalem and pray. But he doesn't say that. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe. You see, repentance of sin and believing upon the saving God through the gospel, that's enough. This is what Nineveh did. They believed the one who was sent in Jonah, which pointed to the greater one who was sent in the Lord Jesus Christ. My question this morning is, have you believed? Because many people come to church every Sunday, but there are many that sit in pews and chairs that have not believed. Do you believe, have you believed the one who came to pay for your sin? Do you believe that God's judgment is or was upon your life? Are you trying to work for the salvation which God freely provides? Because if you are trying to work for salvation, you're trying to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. You see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. Saints of God, like Jonah, we're called to share the gospel with those that are lost, with those that are under his judgment right now. And neither Jonah or us can save a single soul. We leave the results to the Lord because he's the Savior. But does your heart break for your lost family members, for your co-workers, for your neighbors, for your classmates? And the same God that sent Jonah to the Ninevites sends you to those that you know in your circle. Because guess what? Pastor Caleb, he's not going to your family reunion. He's not coming to the office with you on Monday. Right? He's got you know, like 10 babies to take care of, right? (laughs) Don't run from those that are lost. Run to them. And if you're fearful, let love swallow your fears. Because think about it. Who has more to fear? You, who may be rejected, and they might not like you, and they might not invite you to the, you know, the, the office picnic anymore. Or them, which has hell to pay for eternity. Who has it worse? What will they do? Let love swallow your fears because it's better that they get upset with you than they're upset by having the wrath of God poured out upon them for all eternity. And for men that are called here to preach, this is what God will do as you preach God's word. The unbelieving will believe. The unrepentant will repent. The unconverted will be converted to God. And if God has called you to preach, then for God's sake, preach. 
And this preaching will be affirmed by others around you, especially by your elders. And I pray, I pray that God raises up more men to preach his word. And this is not the reality just for preachers. For we're all called to share the gospel. Anyone carrying God's word and pointing people to Christ, God may grant repentance to them and use you as a vessel to carry his glorious gospel to them. Who do you long in your heart to see come to Christ? Where is your Nineveh? Who are the Ninevites in your own life right now? Think about them. Have their faces in your own minds. Oh, that you would carry the gospel to them with great delight. Recall the woman at the well in John 4. She had one conversation with Jesus. She brings the whole village to Christ to hear from him. One immoral woman who everybody knew as the town person, <laughs> she convinces everybody to come to Christ? That is amazing. But God clearly changed her heart and life. In Acts 4.8, it states, Now those who were scattered about went preaching the word. R.C. Sproul wrote, The early church spread the faith, not through professional clergy, but through the laity. All the people of God took the gospel to the outer regions of the empire. You see, the job of those who are ministering and preaching is to equip the saints, equip you for the work of the ministry. Not that Steve Schultz and Pastor Caleb do all the work, but you're equipped to go out and do the work of the ministry. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 6, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, the Lord's servant Jonah preached and God sovereignly granted repentance and brought the Ninevites to their senses to escape the snare of the devil. And if you're God's servant, then you too are to follow suit. The church is to be an evangelistic church. This is why many churches go out to share the gospel in their neighborhoods. In our church, we go out every Monday night. We go out and share the gospel at the Queen Center Mall. And if churches today are going to see more people coming to Christ, greater biblical preaching is required, not one iota less. And God has promised to honor his word. It will never return void. The elect will hear his voice, and they'll hear it through your mouth. God has promised to honor his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And God is still pleased. He's still pre pleased right now to use the foolishness of preaching his word to bring about the conversion of sinners from his own wrath. He did it in Jonah's day, and he'll continue to do it as we faithfully, unashamedly, and boldly, and consistently preach his word in our day to the lost. Do you believe that God can use you for that? It was a saving revival, but it was also a sobering revival. There were clear outward expressions of Trition and deep-seated sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow works repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow produces death. They, they were the real deal. They fasted. You see, this was a symbol of self-denial, which showed outwardly what was taking place in their own hearts. There was deep-seated concern going inside of them. They, they were convinced God was going to just strike them down. 
understand that they were scared for the first time in their lives because they were the world power. And all of a sudden, one little man comes along and tells them something, and they're all shaking in their knees. They realize in their own hearts they were no contest for the Lord of heaven and earth. A people in a city that knew no equal power had finally met its match. As Jonah said in Jonah chapter 1, he controls both the sea and the dry land. Well, that's everything. Because everything is either on the sea or on the dry land. There was nowhere to hide. They couldn't go to their safe space, as we have in many of our colleges, and color. Their impenetrable city walls, their grand battle towers, their superior military might and muscle were no match against an omnipotent God who wielded the sword of the Lord. No one can go toe-to-toe with the Lord and win. And they fasted. John MacArthur references in Isaiah 58 concerning fasting. The people complained when God did not recognize their fasting as genuine, but half-hearted. Hypocritical fasting resulted in contention, quarreling, and pretense, excluding the possibility of genuine prayer to God. Fasting was just an outward ritual, but with false repentance, rather than real penitence over sin and humility and acting humanely toward those in need. But the fasting in Nineveh, it wasn't a false hypocritical humility. This was genuine. This was the real deal. This is why the king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, in verse 8. They demonstrated their godly sorrow by their repentance. Verse 5, they called a fast and they put on sackcloth. In an ancient world, fasting was indicative of godly sorrow, inward contrition, and self-humiliation. And when they wore sackcloth, understand, sackcloth was was a garment of goat hair. It was very coarse, rough and unpleasant to wear. And it was the common apparel of the poor, the prisoners, and slaves. And this abrasive material made those that were wearing it just absolutely miserable. The Ninevites stripped themselves of any adoration and beauty. This was an outward symbol of mourning and inward, they were in anguish over their sin. When Haman schemed and bargained for the destruction of the Jews, Mordecai says, tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth. When Job lost everything in Job 16, 15, he said, I've sold sackcloth upon my skin and have laid strength in the dust. Peter in likewise manner writes, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We might not be wearing sackcloth, but is is there an area of your life where you need to clothe yourself with humility? Is there sin, pride, laziness, disobedience to God by which we must humble our own hearts before God? You see, we become more like the one, Christ, who humbled himself as we humble ourselves because that's what he did. Before you put on a preacher's robe, grab a servant's towel and wash feet. Walk in humility. He became humbled by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Realize the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he washed the disciples' feet and he died a criminal's death and he rose from the grave. Do you walk with the sackcloth of humility upon your life? The Ninevites outwardly expressed that they were powerless to contend with God. They raised the white flag, they threw in the towel, they tapped out and humbly admitted defeat against a far more superior foe, the God of Jonah. 
You see, when the Titanic was taking its maiden voyage, in the newspaper it said, not even God could sink this ship. All God did was, oh yeah, he dropped an ice cube in the water and it ripped that baby open like a tin can. The pride came down. The pride came down. And this is the need of the hour. What our country needs is not to go green, not to save the whales or the manatees or just simply to educate people more. The desperate need of the hour is to realize this. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and readied his bow, Psalm 7-2, with his flaming wrath-filled arrow aimed directly at the heart. But God shoots his arrow at them and they are wounded suddenly, Psalm 64-7. His arrow soaked with their blood. You see, saints... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10. And a man must kiss the son right now, lest he be angry, Psalm chapter 2. A godly sorrow must, must enter the heart and drive one to repentance and turning from wickedness. And this is what happened in Nineveh. But it, has this happened in your own heart? Has this happened in you? Has the word of God so penetrated the stone-cold great metropolis of your own Ninevite heart as it did to theirs. Well, it wasn't only a saving and sobering revival, it was a sweeping revival. Notice what it says in verse 5. From the greatest of them to the least of them. From princes to paupers, big names to no names, upper class to lower class, the wealthy and the poor, male and female, young and old, they were all miserably broken over their sin. And this citywide response was huge in its scope and impact. Like throwing a rock in the middle of the water, it rippled out to the entire community because everyone needed to hear God's word and everyone needed to heed God's word of impending doom because everyone was affected. And God's spirit fills his church to be witnesses unto Christ and to bring the gospel to those in high positions of leadership and those that have no positions of leadership at all. Presidents and paupers all need Christ. And you have the Christ they need. Bring it to them. Bring it to them. In Acts 1.8 it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And to the uttermost part of the earth. You see, even the king was smitten and crushed under the weight of his own sin. By God's truth. He, he rises from his exalted throne. Picture this. He humbles himself. He takes off his royal robes. And he puts on servant sackcloth. He was deeply convicted. God had sown godly sorrow in his heart. Which is shown through the changing of the garments. And he's not, no longer sitting on the throne. Where is he sitting now? He's sitting on the ashes. And to sit on the ashes is to realize one deserves to be incinerated, burnt to a crisp under the judgment of God. And this king, he, he's still a newly born again Christian or believer in the things of God, but he becomes an instant preacher. He didn't go to seminary, but he starts proclaiming the truth of God. He issues an executive order and proclaims in verse 7 through 9, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them neither feed nor drink, but let every man and beast be converted, be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. He says, let everyone turn. 
from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Nineveh had ransacked the world. Understand, they, they crushed kingdoms and now they come face to, face to face with a greater kingdom and felt threatened for the first time by a far more superior king. And yet only one little small country preacher subject heralded the decree of the king of heaven and earth, namely Jonah. This threat could not be impeached. You could take it to the bank. God wielded a sword over Nineveh and the sand of the hourglass was quickly running out and drove them to their knees. There was a definite span of time of 40 days and that's it. The number is up for you. The dynamite is going to explode and they would experience Paul's words in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. They would experience both. And the king is humbled. He doesn't try to cover up his issue of sin, but he issues an edict from his own fearful heart. And it was so encompassing that not only did all the people wear sackcloth, even the animals. This was a common way to say, to express deep mourning and remorse and shame and supplication over their sin. They, they were trying to say, listen, we're all in. Even the animals are in on this. And saints, everyone in your home, in your city, and in your world, they need Christ. We even have to pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not. And this was a sanctifying revival. God converted the king and all those under his rule. There was a severing from their pattern and culture of violence and wickedness. Holiness and sanctification are terms which speak of separation. They had previously been known for their vast bloodshed of other nations all around the world. The name chapter 3. And as you proclaim to be converted unto Christ, there must be a separation from sin, a transformation in your life whereby the old has passed away and everything has become new. When people say they have a new relationship with God, you have to also ask them, do you also have a new relationship with sin? You say, I love God, but do you start to hate sin? Hate the sin that's within you. And the king proclaims in Jonah chapter 3, let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. And so Jonah, he doesn't lead them in a citywide sinner's prayer, right? Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your pinky. I see that hand. I see that spear. Right? He doesn't do that. So how did they know what to do if they were not led in a sinner's prayer? Because many churches teach that you have to go to the magic part of the room and recite the magic words at the magic altar. And this is not what Jonah did. He prayed prior to his mission in the fish. And then he preached in Nineveh. And he just left the results to the Lord. You see, when pagans hear the word of God and are convicted by the Holy Spirit, they will know what to do. Because the Spirit of God will be leading them. We don't have to parrot words to them to repeat after us. The Holy Spirit works repentance in the heart. Faith and repentance are inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin and both issued by the king's edict by joining the general with the specific. Let me help you understand this. First he says, call to God. Jonah's God. No other God. Not your pagan gods or any other God you worship. Jonah's God. 
and he hears the prayers of his chosen one. Secondly, he says, turn from his evil way or wicked way. This is sin stated broadly and generically. Everything condemned by divine law and human conscience. And thirdly, he says, turn from the violence that is in his hands. This is more specific. This represents the infringement upon human rights or the defiance of common decency. This suggests one's depravity. Sin acted out in aggressive violence toward other people and nations, even including murder. The gang, MS-13, which I believe is heavily on Long Island, they're murderers as they dice people up. And so as a gang, they're absolutely guilty as a gang. But each one of them is individually guilty before God as well. The Expositor's Bible Commentary notes the Assyrians assumed that in virtue of his conquest, he had been placed above lesser breeds and was entitled to ignore the dictates of conscience and compassion in his behavior toward his neighbors. But in true repentance, the Assyrians renounced their sin. They, they looked down their nose at others. They thought they were better than everybody else so they could just slaughter everyone else. And the Hebrew word for turn is used four times in verses 8 through 9, which means to change direction. And in reference to people, one who will turn decisively either to God or to idols or turn away from God or idols. And better than any other verb, it combines in itself two requirements of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to good. The people of Nineveh turned away from idols and they turned to the true and triune God. And this was expressed in the fact that they believed in God and turned from their wicked ways. The king hoped against hope in verse 9. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, he was throwing a football from 10 stadiums away. He was, in his mind, it was almost like throwing a Hail Mary. And not only a repentant prophet and people, but finally, a repenting God. Found in verse 10. Let's look. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, I know what you're thinking. Because I thought it too. How can God repent? He's God. He doesn't need to repent of anything. Especially when Numbers 29, 23, 19 specifically states, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. Or how about this? Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. It initially sounds like there was no hope for Nineveh. In 40 days, God will reign unyielding destruction, and it was impossible to be averted. Recall with me how God withdrew his threatening judgment after the intervention of Moses' prayer to prevent the destruction of the people of Israel in Exodus 32. God added 15 years to the life of Hezekiah after he prayed in Isaiah 38, 1-6. And God does not bring promised judgment upon Nineveh when the people repented here in Jonah chapter 3. So did God say one thing and do another? Was he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Because it, it may appear to some that he did so. But you see, when, God, when the Bible says that God doesn't change, it's speaking of his nature, of his character, of his being. Consider what Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 and 3 says. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty 
Again in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so we see in these verses that God will by no means clear the guilty and will take vengeance upon them. But it is also God who takes pleasure in being merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and forgiving of sinners. So how does this play out both in Jonah's life and in your life and my life, in our time? Well, knowing the wickedness of Nineveh, God sent Jonah and surely... Surely God could have just rained his judgment down upon them and saved Jonah the trip. As a matter of fact, I think Jonah would have appreciated that if you know the chapters before. But God responds differently to different situations. Let's wrap our heads around this. God responds differently to different situations. You see, God sees the wickedness of Nineveh and he sends Jonah to proclaim, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Although the possibility that God would withhold judgment if the people repented, is not, is not explicitly mentioned in Jonah's proclamation as recorded in Scripture. It is, of course, implicit in that the warning, the purpose for which proclaiming a warning is to bring about repentance. Once the people repented, the situation was different. And God responded differently to their changed situation. Therefore, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented or relented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God ceased to do what he was going to do because they were no longer a rebellious people. They were, in fact, a different people. They had become his children. They had become brothers and sisters to Jonah. And God will never, he'll never destroy his children. Because there's a distinction between conditional declarations of God and unconditional determinations of God. In other words, when God says, I will destroy Nineveh in 40 days, he was speaking conditionally upon their repentance. And we know this because when the Assyrians repented, God did not mete out the judgment that he said he would do. So he didn't change his mind. Rather, his message to Nineveh was a message warning them to provoke them to repentance and the warning was successful. Note the conditional word if in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 11. He says, if the nation I warn repents, like Assyria does in Jonah 3, then I will relent. Conversely, God may tell a nation they will be blessed. But if they do evil in my sight, like Israel in Micah 1, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do to them. God changing his treatment of us in response to our submission to him has nothing to do with his changing character. God changing his treatment of you and I to our submission to him has nothing to do with his changing character. In fact, because God does not change, he must treat the righteous differently than the unrighteous. If someone repents toward us, we're to forgive them. And if someone repents toward God, God will constantly forgive them. And if they refuse to repent, God will constantly judge them. And aren't you glad God is not mutable? 
but immutable. He, he, he's not a changing God. He's an unchanging God. You never have to worry about God waking up on the wrong side of the divine bed, saying, you know what? I'm just having a, a bad day today. I just feel like cracking open the earth with an earthquake. I just feel like throwing a flood upon the world like I did in Noah's day and just drowning everybody because I'm upset today because someone is not obeying me. God was simply staying true to his character. He loves mercy and to forgive the penitent. The psalmist asks, has God forgotten to be merciful? In Psalm 77, verse 9, well, the answer is no. And in one time, we were all enemies of God due to our sin. God warned us the wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And this brought us to a place of repentance. Well, in closing, we looked at a repentant people, prophet, and God. Where are you in your spiritual walk right now? This very second let me close with three quotes from George Whitfield, along with three questions. Whitfield said, this, The care of the soul is a matter of the highest importance beyond anything which can be brought into comparison with it. As Jonah repented for his sin, do you need to repent for failing to obey God? Quote number two by Whitfield. Press forward. Do not stop. Do not linger in your journey, but strive for the mark set before you. Fight the good fight of faith and God will give you spiritual mercies. You see, Jonah had to know the word of God to preach the word of God. How much time do you spend learning the word of God with the, listen to this, 168 hours you have in your week? Is there enough time for God's word? There must be. There must be. It comes out of the heart and out of the desire. We spend time with things and people that we love most. Are you in the Word of God more or in Facebook more? Are you in Sunday school, discipleship groups, prayer meetings? Do you go out and share the gospel with the lost? Quote number three, Edward, uh, Whitfield says, God forbid that I should travel with anyone a quarter of an hour without speaking Christ to them. Do you long to see the lost saved? Do you long to see the unbelieving believe God, even among the most wicked people that you and I know? Do you believe to the point where you would share the gospel with them, knowing that they might not live to see another day? You may never see them again, except perhaps at their own funeral, knowing that God may grant them repentance and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. This is not the job of the elders in the church alone. It is your job. And this morning, if you don't know Christ, then Jonah's warning goes out to you. How many days, months, or years until you perish in your own sin? If you don't turn from your sin, God will be God. And he will not relent. He will pour his wrath out in full measure, which abides upon you at this very moment. He's patient, but even his patience has a time limit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Press your word upon the hearts of your people, Lord. May repentance take place in the hearts that need to repent. Father, I pray, Lord, that we will go to those that are lost, that we will believe the word of God enough to speak the word of God and live the word of God. We won't run from it. We'll run with it and to it. And we thank you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.